Welcome everyone to our podcast today. I have Dr. Robin Price with me and he has graciously agreed to share some of his expertise with us. To start off with, I'm going to give you a minute to introduce yourself, Dr. Price, and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Well, thanks again for inviting me, Denise. It's a pleasure to catch up again. And So a little bit about me. I grew up in a little small town of La Jara, Colorado. My graduating high school class was, I think, 64. Oh, wow. So a, a very small area, farming town. I grew up on a farm. And um, my dad, obviously, is a farmer. My mom is a school teacher. Mm-hmm. So they instilled in me the values of hard work and, and education. And my dad always said, make sure to get a good education so you don't have to make a living farming. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the, the seeds all along. I ended up uh, starting out at Colorado State University, thinking about going into education or possibly computer science, and uh, took a few courses in, in those. And, and then I went on a, a two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And when I came back, things changed. I, I really liked working with people and wanted to find a way to help people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew very little about optometry. I had glasses and contact lenses growing up, but I didn't know much about what optometry that really was. But I ended up deciding to pursue it, um, thinking it was a good way to help people. And uh, ended up going to optometry school in Oklahoma. And uh, as far as vision therapy goes, I had never heard of vision therapy before I started school. And the first year of optometry school, I had a a friend in my class named Jason Albano, who was like, you know, Robin, you really should check out the vision therapy clinic. Um, Now, most of the time, we didn't even get to be in vision therapy until the end of second year or in third year. Um, but he had, had gone to undergraduate there and uh, knew about the VT clinic. Mm-hmm. So I was introduced to Dr. W.C. Maples and started working for him as one of his assistants and one of his vision therapists and got to work with him over the next four years of optometry school and really learned more about what vision therapy can do to help people. Uh, to change lives, and it really fit well with my mother's background in education and my desire to help people. Um, so from there, we did a, uh, at that time, an informal residency in Kansas with Dr. Patrick Perot, and we spent two years in Wichita, Kansas. Um, loved the, our time there, loved the people there, um, and then we wanted to get back closer to family. And I had always thought of going back to Colorado. And I actually had a couple of opportunities in the Denver area, but it, it just, it didn't feel right coming from such a small town that I grew up in. I didn't really want to be in a big city like Denver. Mm-hmm. So we came to Utah. My wife grew up here and decided to open a practice in Utah. And so we, we looked around Utah County um, for several weeks when we had a break and uh, finally ended up choosing Pleasant Grove because we found a good office space, um, a nice community and um, went from there. Okay. Pleasant Grove had never seen anybody like you, had they? (laughs) No. And 
it was interesting because when we came back and I went around trying to meet different doctors, both optometrists and ophthalmologists in the area, and letting them know that I wanted to come back and do vision therapy, uh, there were a lot of doctors that were supportive. Like, wow, we're really glad someone wants to do that. I hope you can make it work. Um, some were like, well, we've tried it and it just doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. It's too hard because insurances don't pay for vision therapy. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's really tough for people to pay out of pocket. Um, and there were some that were obviously opposed mm-hmm. to vision therapy just because of things that they had heard. That, right. oh, vision therapy doesn't work. But yeah, we we made a go of it, and so yeah, it was it was a rough start, and it took us years, yeah, to kind of get comfortable. But uh, yeah, we're still here. Yeah, excellent. And not only that, but you're growing, right? Yes, that's awesome. So, how did you educate people, or how do you, I guess, still educate people about why they would want to choose to do vision therapy? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it, it really comes down to word of mouth. And fortunately, we had a few of those doctors that were supportive. Um, I remember a few, Dr. Lori Hooley in American Fork um, has been one of our biggest supporters since the time we started in 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Scott Lewis, who was in Salt Lake at the time, um, was also a a supporter and they both referred a few patients and from there you know just slowly over time the word spread um, through success stories and and through referrals and that's how we were able to stay afloat and continue to grow and and build the business so i want to thank them especially for helping <laughs> us really get the ball rolling yeah um, dr lewis for example he ended up kind of doing the same thing i did he went and, and worked with a doctor in Virginia for a year, learning how to actually do vision therapy in private practice. And, and now he has a, a great vision therapy practice in, in uh, the Boise, Idaho area. Oh, excellent. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the types of patients that you see and kind of the age ranges. We work with people from birth to until old age. <laughs> um, yeah, we really see infants um, in the first year of their life to, you know, people in their later years. So mm-hmm. uh, there's really no one that's not welcome in the office. <laughs> but uh, there... yeah, we started out kind of working with grade school kids, mm-hmm. and especially our vision therapy practice has just expanded from there. Um, so, yes, there are some things we can do with, with infants, um, and there are, are things we can do with adults as well. Some people think that, oh, it's too late if, if my vision problem is not corrected by the time I hit seven, eight years old. There's nothing else that can be done, mm-hmm. um, and that's just not true. Well, that's been something that a lot of doctors have believed for a long time, hasn't it, that there's that critical age? Yes, um, unfortunately. And, and while it's true that younger brains are more malleable and, and can learn faster, the adult brain is still plastic as well. So the principles of neuroplasticity never go away. Right. And sometimes it's a little harder to break down the habits that we've built up over time and, and different ways that we've compensated. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, it's certainly not impossible to change the adult brain as well. Yeah. Do you find that uh, with adults that it's more likely that they might need surgery as well, like I did? Yes, that's a, a really good question as well. It, it depends a lot on kind of the extent um, of the vision problem as well as their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, even when there's infants and, and children um, with strabismus that we still work with surgery on. Unfortunately, we do have a, a couple of, of really good surgeons in the area. Mm-hmm. Not that are not only skilled as surgeons, but are willing to learn about vision therapy and work together with us. Um, similar to you know an orthopedic surgeon and a, a physical therapist, you know a, a strabismus surgeon and a vision therapist are are often really good teammates in the care of a patient. Mm-hmm. So, does it just depend on the degree of turn? with a patient and maybe not as much their age, whether they'll need both? Yeah, that and looking into kind of the amount and the types of adaptations that have been made, you know, is is the brain actually capable of using both eyes together or is it really using the dominant eye and suppressing the weaker eye? Um, Different adaptations that, um, and compensations that are made. Kind of, do we have a starting point that we can build from? Um, and then, yeah, the extent of the, the angle of strabismus is certainly a, a factor as well. You mentioned that some of your patients are infants. Is it best for people to bring their children in as infants rather than waiting to see how their eyes are developing? Yes, most people don't think of actually seeing the eye doctor until there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And often, the main problem that people notice is trouble seeing the board in school. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, as long as they can see clearly, they think everything is fine. But uh, the American Optometric Association actually recommends that infants have an eye exam within the first year of life. So around six months is a good time to bring uh, those children in. Uh, there is a free screening program by the AOA called Infancy, mm-hmm. which uh, participating doctors sign up to provide a, a free comprehensive evaluation of uh, the baby's eyes and visual system. And even, of course, we know the baby can't read the eye chart, but we're looking at how the eyes are focusing. Are they equal in how they're working? Are the eye muscles working together? Are there any signs of of amblyopia or what's called lazy eye that can be corrected before it becomes a major problem? And then do you actually do exercises or therapy types of things with infants or do they have to wait till they're a little older? Well, because the visual system is an extension of the brain, it has to be developed. Right? None of us are born with 20-20 eyesight. None of us are born with good eye movement skills um, or good depth perception. Those skills are learned over time as we experience the world. Right. And then when things don't develop as they should or, or don't develop properly, 
often developmental exercises can be implemented even with infants to help work on bilateral integration, left brain, right brain communication, and gross motor coordination, which then helps develop the fine motor coordination needed for the eye muscles to work together um, and for balance between the two eyes. So yes, there's a lot of things that can be done even with infants. Now, as far as office-based therapy, typically we don't start with office training until they're a little older and able to, to handle that. But there are a lot of things that we can train the parents on that they can, can do at home, um, just different developmental exercises. If the, the child is seeing a physical therapist or working with an occupational therapist, we can often work with them as well on different exercises to include to help with the development of the visual system. Excellent. So are some of those therapists trained in some vision therapy types of things? Then that's why they're able to, or are they just kind of are incorporated in naturally? Yeah, with uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy, again, because they're working on function, mm-hmm. right? And we're all kind of accessing the brain through different therapies. Um, and so if we can work with other therapists and kind of help give different guidelines on different activities that will help with brain development, that's going to translate later into vision development as well. Okay. So are there certain warning signs or red flags that parents should be looking for? With with infants, often it's difficult to tell, Mm -hmm. right? So let's start there. Um, And of course, with strabismus, if there's any concern with are the eyes crossing or wandering, we trust mothers Mm -hmm. because they're with them all the time, even if it's an intermittent eye turn. Right. So if there's any concern, you know, please have it checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's going to be a false strabismus due to just the development of, of the, the eyelids and the bridge of the nose. But oftentimes it's real. Mm-hmm. And if we can catch those earlier, the earlier we can, can catch them, the earlier we can start doing something about it um, and hopefully prevent major problems from occurring and interfering. So with infants, now what happens if their eyes are straight? Um, They can still develop amblyopia, which is still the leading cause of vision loss in children in the United States. And that's because it's hard to tell. The the infant can't tell you that one eye is blurry. and, And most of the time they don't know either because the brain just switches to the dominant eye. Mm-hmm. So often that isn't picked up until much later when they actually start having vision screenings in school or at the pediatrician. Right. And by then it's, it is harder to treat. Um, one of the stories that um, we know personally is, uh, well, she's not so little anymore, but a, a girl named Jillian Benoit. I had Jillian and Robin on, on my podcast. Great. So, yeah. yeah. So Our listeners can go story. back and listen and listen to that. <laughs> if they, they don't remember. Yeah. So um, as you may recall, Jillian um, had a, a problem with her vision that was really undetected mm-hmm. 
And she tells the story of, of going in for vision screenings. And you know, she would read the chart with her strong eye, good eye. Mm-hmm. And then she would cover that eye and she couldn't see it, but she remembered what the letters were. And yeah, she thought it was a memory test. <laughs> well, and, I think uh, she listened to the people before her too. So yes. she had a lot of time to memorize it all. Yeah. Um, and, and that's very common in, in school vision screenings. Right. right. But once it was detected and, and they did something about it and received vision therapy and helped her develop the binocular system and, and depth perception and, and the skills needed for reading and learning you know, changed her life. Right. Yeah. And you probably have some of those kinds of stories in your own practice that you could share with us, right? We do. And that's really what keeps us going is, is the patients. And I wish we could help everyone that mm-hmm. comes to us. And, you know, the success rate, we're not 100%. It's good. I think we, we help most patients with improved function mm-hmm. and outcome. It's not always the goals that I have, but it's, it's fun. As I was kind of preparing for our talk today, I, I went and reviewed some of our success stories. And it was really fun to read them and, and just recall some of the patients that we've been able to work with. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific examples you can share? Yeah, let me pull some of those up really quick. Okay. I'm on a lot of Facebook groups for strabismus support. And it feels like a lot of times parents don't know that there is anything other than taking their child to an ophthalmologist and doing surgery. Are the doctors that are referring to you surgeons or are they optometrists mostly? We get referrals from both, actually. Um, okay. And so, yeah, fortunately, over almost 15 years now, been able to forge some really good relationships with optometrists in the area, um, a couple of ophthalmologists, mm-hmm. physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, concussion specialists, rehabilitation specialists, and, and physiatrists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while we don't get referrals every day, it's nice that we have a, a team basically that we can work with and right. that will refer to us and then we can refer to them as well mm-hmm. for help in those different areas. So uh, sometimes there are babies that do need surgery as well then, and you're referring that way? Yes. Um, it's interesting. So with babies, right, we certainly don't want to wait too long to do something. Mm-hmm. So typically what we recommend is, is starting with some, some developmental exercises for a couple of months, and sometimes we'll start seeing progress. But if we're not making any changes, um, then yes, I think it's a very appropriate to get a, a consultation with a surgeon and see what we can do together to, to help the child. Mm-hmm. So like if, uh, for instance, my brother, his eyes were really right in the center, both of them mm-hmm. at birth, and he couldn't see anything. And so he had surgery twice when he was an infant, one on each eye, and then later a follow-up when he was like seven, mm-hmm. but no vision therapy. <laughs> yeah. So so function never happened for him. Yeah. That's where I, I still wish that there were better communication between 
strabismus surgeons, and vision therapy doctors. It's been changing over the last several years. There are doctors all over the country, you know, that have learned more on both sides, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's helped to, to forge relationships you know, with, with doctors a- across the country. There's still some work to go, still education that needs to happen and, and relationships that need to be formed. But fortunately, yeah, we, we do have a couple of, of good doctors in the area that we've been able to work with and that uh, we refer back and forth. Um, and again, when we remember that the, the goal is to really help the child. Mm-hmm. And when we especially, we, we look at the ultimate function of the person. And we know that vision is more than just 2020 eyesight. Yeah. It's, it's how we perceive the world and then how we react. And so our vision guides our movement. And uh, of course, with education, it's so important with, with reading and learning. If I can back up a little bit, back when I started in, in Utah, there was really no one doing office-based vision therapy. Uh, there were a few doctors that were doing some, some things with vision therapy and, and certainly grateful for them, um, but no one had really been able to have a successful office-based vision therapy practice. Right. Um, so I worked to become board certified in vision development and vision therapy through the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then fortunately, you know, there's been other doctors now that have, have been able to become board certified as well. But for a while, I was alone and I felt very alone. Right. Um, and so, yeah, when you're really the only one, it is kind of tough to get the word out and to help people understand exactly what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the public perception is that, oh, the, you know, the optometrist is for glasses or contacts or, you know, if I have allergy eyes or an eye infection, things like that. Yeah. Well, and haven't you been the one that's helped those other doctors to also become certified, right? As they've come into the area, some of them have worked with you. Yeah. It's been really fun to have almost every vision therapy doctor in the state of Utah has either worked in our office as a student extern or like Dr. Davies, where we worked together for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a few others that, again, it really is a, a community. Um, so it's been nice to be a small part. I certainly can't take credit for what they've done or what they're doing, but it's been nice to be a small part of, of helping them either get started or learning how to incorporate vision therapy into their practice and, and uh, be able to keep it going. Yeah. That's, that's an excellent service that you're providing in doing that. Do you ever tell someone that they're not a good candidate for vision therapy? We do. And there are several factors that go into that. Vision therapy is not a quick fix. Right. And so much of our world today is instant gratification, right? Mm-hmm. I talk to my kids about, you know, of course, when I was growing up, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have internet. Right. Um, And when we started to get internet, it was dial up, it was slow. (laughs) It was. In order to, you know, even download a, a document, it took 
a long time, <laughs> relatively speaking. Yeah. Uh, and we take that for granted. And so when we, when we live in a fast food world and everything at our fingertips, uh, for someone to go through the process of a therapy, like vision therapy and, and others, it, where it takes time and effort and work, mm-hmm. sometimes it's difficult. Um, and so the patient has to be invested. The parents have to be invested. Mm-hmm. Those are the two main factors. It's not that, necessarily their diagnosis then. It's more their ability or willingness to participate in the process. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, looking at uh, someone with, with crossed eyes or a, a, an eye misalignment, are we going to achieve 100% success as far as completely straight eyes and depth perception to the highest degree? No. And, and we, I've learned a lot about that. And, and we really try and be upfront with patients, letting them know, here's what we can do. And here's what we may not be able to achieve. Mm-hmm. But if they're willing to work at what we can do, and most of the time, that is improved function. So in, improved eye-tracking abilities and focusing abilities, um, improved peripheral vision and peripheral awareness. So improved ability to know where they are in their environment and uh, be able to see what's around them and react quickly and appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, So looking at real world things, if we can help someone be a better reader because of improved visual skills or drive again after a stroke, um, those are the things that we want to work on, just improved quality of life. Right. Do you have a bunch of stroke patients then? You mentioned stroke in there. Yeah, we, we see quite a bit. Uh, of stroke patients and concussion patients, brain injury patients. Mm-hmm. And those are, are certainly challenging, but rewarding as well. Because often you know, with stroke patients, it's interesting with, with motor deficits, they're routinely sent for physical therapy to improve function there. Right. But with sensory deficits like vision, often they're told that nothing can be done. Right. And so just live with it. Um, and again, while we, in many cases, can't get back to 100%, there's certainly a lot that can be done to improve functional abilities and improve their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, and I just did a follow-up with my friend, Rebecca, who you treated, and that, that's going to be available for people to listen to, too. Great. Yeah, it was definitely a help for her. So I'd love to share some success stories if you'd like. Okay. Yeah. uh, Let's, let's do that now. One of these, um, her mother shared this story with us. She says, Marcy has been working with Dr. Curtis, who's my partner Mm -hmm. for several months. She had a vertical misalignment that was pretty severe. We worked with him to try to avoid surgery if that was an option, but her situation did end up requiring surgery. And that made a huge difference. He recommended a surgeon and he did a wonderful job. Where she once had a 20% difference, it is now only about 5%. And her eyes are much straighter and more aligned. 
we continue to do vision therapy exercises to help her use both eyes together. And she has improved so much. We love Dr. Curtis and all the people who have so patiently worked with Marcy. We are so pleased with her improvement and are so grateful to have found child and family eye care. They have been a lifesaver. Nice. Again, often patients will come really trying to avoid surgery. In some, some cases, we can do that. Right. But in some cases, it's helpful to, to have that surgeon working with us, especially where we can work together. And the surgery helps with the alignment, like with that. They had a 20% difference in alignment. And with surgery, that it didn't make it perfect, but it brought it down to 5%. And that's something that we could then work with and really help improve from there. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I noticed with my own journey was that until I had my eyes aligned, they couldn't really figure out how to work together. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't bring my eye over to where it needed to be and keep it there so that I could do what was expected. So it was good that we were able to do both. What are some things that parents can do at home with their children to encourage good visual development? Well, the first thing is, actually, let's go back to before the child is born. So during pregnancy, if if the mothers can move a little bit, you know, take a walk and, and stimulate you know, that vestibular system that is developing even in the room, um, that can help with visual development later. Uh, So just taking care of yourself as that child is still in the room. And then as infants, uh, really working on what we call bilateral integration, meaning using both sides of the body uh, to stimulate left brain and right brain. Mm -hmm. I remember when our first child was born thinking, you know, when they got to that point where they started walking, oh, how great it is that they're walking. Um, But it's really important to go through a good crawling stage for, again, that left brain, right brain, and that gross motor development. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's often something that is overlooked. Um, And then just with children, giving them experiences. um, That's one of the most enjoyable things of of having infants and toddlers is just to see how they learn and how much of a sponge they are. And and through those experiences of, you know, with an infant, they see something and, and of course they want to touch it and they bring it to their lips to feel it. Um, And then they gain a picture in their brain of what does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, and that helps build visual memories mm-hmm. and that stimulus to move. So, so helping them explore their world and, and not keeping them cooped up. I mean, it's, it's easy to put the baby in the car seat and, <laughs> and keep them there, right? You right. put them in the, the carrier, they strap into the car seat in the car and you take them out and you just hold them in the carrier, but, but getting them out and letting them move around that, that movement is so critical in those early years. Mm-hmm. And then once they get into to school years, really looking for any concerns with, with reading. Um, oftentimes things like 
does your vision go blurry or do you see the words moving or going double worth reading? Kids often don't know what that is like. They just think that's the way things are if they experience it. Mm-hmm. So looking for, you know, trouble keeping track of where they are when they read, losing place, skipping lines, repeating lines, uh, trouble with reversals. A lot of people think, well, what does that have to do with my eyes? Well, it's not eyesight, but it is brain development mm-hmm. and visualization. And so if there's signs of rubbing their eyes or you know, tired eyes, those are things that their vision may be interfering with their reading and learning. Yeah. And so now we're getting more back into so, some of those red flags to watch out for, right? Yes. Yeah, and I liked how what you were saying about uh, what they can, what parents can do, that you included the pregnant mom because I don't think moms ever think about how their movement or lack of movement is affecting the development of their baby, right? And then that movement is that uh, unifying thing later on too, and letting the baby move, you know, and just everybody moving, right? (laughs) Mom's moving, baby's moving. And, and does that, I mean, I, I would assume that that also is going to continue to be a good thing, right? To, ha- to encourage children to, to get more movement. Yes. They're, they're developing their visual systems. Yes. And, and, and that's, again, our, our visual system really is designed for movement, mm-hmm. right? A lot of times, yes, we think of it as for reading and things like that. But if we look at real life, it's to help us navigate the world around us. And yes. so those experiences of, of children. And unfortunately, yeah, the world has changed. As I mentioned, I grew up on a farm and I had several hundred acres to just explore. Yeah. And, I, and we could go out and I could you know, play with my brothers and cousins and, and climb trees and, and run through the fields. And mm-hmm. it's just not that way anymore. And so often, Kids are inside um, a lot due to various concerns. Yeah. Um, that movement, getting out and playing, um, kicking a ball, learning how to throw and catch, and um, going to the playground and, and just moving and playing are, are not only fun, but they're critical for brain development. Right. Yeah. And I understand that you have some additional training with gifted children. And experience in that area. Is that right? The fun thing about this area and the challenging thing about this area of practice is that you never stop learning. Mm-hmm. And, and when you do, I think you're done. But <laughs> <laughs> so continuing education is critical. And fortunately, I've been able to take um, some courses from experts across the country, uh, working with patients on the autism spectrum. Um, and really trying to connect with them and helping them develop their visual skills as well. And there's, again, a lot that can be done through vision therapy to, again, help them just communicate better, to see their world better, to use their, their vision better to, again, understand their world and communicate that world to those around them. 
So your specialty is in that area is with autistic children then. Is that right? Yeah. So it's even. Well, is that harder to, to work with them in the office and everything too, because of the, the way that they are navigating the world? Um, it really depends. And one of my favorite quotes um, about working with patients on the autism spectrum is that, you know, if you've had one patient with autism, you've had one patient with autism because <laughs> everyone is different. Right. Um, there's a, a school here in Pleasant Grove for uh, patients on the autism spectrum. And uh, fortunately, we've been able to, to work with some of the students there. Some of the staff have been very helpful in inviting us in. And one of the occupational therapists there was was actually one of our former vision therapists mm-hmm. that went on to occupational therapy school. And again, being able to just help incorporate vision development activities and exercises to, again, help these kids have better lives. Excellent. There's another area of vision therapy that includes vision therapy for athletes. You do some of that as well, right? We do. Um, my, I guess my, my main passion has always been helping kids that are struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, sports vision is certainly a fun area. It's been fun to work with, with ath- athletes that just want to improve their visual skills and help them get better. Uh, Dr. Davies, you know, in the state of Utah is, is really the go-to guy there for okay. sports vision. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we've, we've been fortunate to work with a, a few, well, high school baseball players, uh, college women's softball players. Uh, we had one Olympic archer uh, wow. that did vision therapy, um, and that was really fun to, to work with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fun thing about sports vision is, is you're often working with someone that has really good visual skills, and you're just trying to enhance it. Right. Um, certainly challenging to again, just help them reach that next level of, again, how can their visual system translate into functional performance. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, I noticed that you were instrumental in a new policy that the Utah that Utah came out with, the Utah School Vision Screening Policy in August of 2019. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and what the implications are? Yes, well, a lot of the the changes there came from, um, again, patients that we had worked with. Um, and I want to get back to that story in a minute as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Senator Luce Escamilla, she actually had a daughter with amblyopia as well that was, that was not caught in, until later. And, um, and again, found a doctor at the University of Utah, Dr. Dries, that was able to help them. And, and so she had kind of learned the importance of good vision screenings, more than just the 2020 test, reading the eye chart. Mm-hmm. So a combination of working with um, some of our patients, uh, Justin and Lynette Heideman were instrumental in kind of helping spur that along. Um, and then fortunately, Senator Escamilla was able to get a team together 
Dr. Jared Davies and I were fortunate to be part of that, uh, just giving our input and feedback along with the Utah School Nurses Association. And how can we improve vision screenings in school? Again, most people think of vision, like I mentioned earlier, as simply 2020 eyesight. And of course, as we mentioned, in school vision screenings, you, you line up, you read the eye chart, you cover one eye, read the eye chart, cover the other eye, read the eye chart, um, and then you move on. Right. Um, but with reading, our eyes have to aim at the right spot on the page. They have to change focus to keep the words clear. They have to move together as a team as you're tracking across the line of print. And they have to do that over and over again all day. And so unless we're testing those skills as well, there are a lot of vision problems that are just simply going to be missed in your traditional school vision screenings or even pediatrician vision screenings. So mm -hmm. what we did was work to find a, an easy, simple way for school nurses to implement some of this testing in school-based vision screenings. We know that school nurses are overwhelmed and overworked, especially when they have five, six, seven schools that they are in charge of. So we work together to, to build some tests, you know, something simple as looking at what's called the near point of convergence. And you hold up a target and bring that towards the child's eyes and see if they can cross their eyes together and maintain that alignment and focus on the target. Mm -hmm. uh, and you repeat that a few times to see if there's any factor of fatigue. Um, looking at some simple tracking tests, just watching the eyes as you're tracking a target side to side, up and down, um, in circles, um, and looking for any jumps or again, can they maintain fixation or do they lose it? Mm -hmm. If you're seeing that in those simple screening tests, then there's likely going to be problems when they're trying to read. One of the best screening tools is actually a symptoms questionnaire. Sometimes in vision screenings, if they're done in, earlier in the day and the child has slept well and had a good breakfast, they may perform well on the screening. But what happens after a full day of school when they are tired? Right. So a symptoms checklist, and one of the best one is from the College of Optometrists and Vision Development, and I can give you the link to that, and you can put in the show notes. Excellent, yes. But it's a 19-item checklist to look for different symptoms that has been studied, you know, that the child can fill it out if they're old enough, the parent can fill it out, the teacher can fill it out. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all valid ways of, of screening the visual skills of the child. And it's looking at their, their performance in school, basically. Right? Things like, you know, physical signs, like do they hold their books too close? Um, do they show signs of, of tired eyes or rubbing their eyes? Do they um, have trouble keeping numbers lined up when they're doing math? Do they lose their place when they read? Um, do they skip lines or repeat lines? Um, do they get headaches after reading at the end of the school day? Um, so it's a great way that parents can, again, look at these things and, and have a good idea 
Even if they've been told, oh, your child's vision is 20-20, their vision is perfect, there still may be an undetected vision problem that can really be treated um, relatively easy and, and really change lives. Yeah. So does that policy include all the children in Utah now? Like all of them are going to be receiving that kind of a, a screening, or is it just if they're recommended for the screening? Well, it, it's it's still a process. And <laughs> it is law. Yeah. And implementation is, a, is another matter, and there's still a lot of education. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of school administrators and school nurses that, that just aren't aware. Uh, they haven't been trained. And so it's not happening as it should. The main thing is, yes, if a child is struggling in school, they should be referred to the nurse for these additional screenings. Mm-hmm. And again, the main thing is letting parents know right away of things to look for right. and building relationships with school nurses and letting them know that we are a resource to help. Oftentimes, with these sort of binocular vision problems that affect reading and learning. Now, sometimes the patient needs office-based vision therapy. Many times they don't. Many times there are simple things that can be incorporated at home um, or even in the school system that can really turn things around. So not every child that struggles will need six months of office-based vision therapy. Okay. And that's one thing that I wish parents would know and and school teachers and administrators would know is that so much can be done in little ways to make a big difference. Can you give us a couple of examples of maybe uh, something that could be done in a classroom setting? Yes. As we mentioned before, the visual system is an extension of the brain, Mm -hmm. right? So, A lot of times school teachers are doing what's called brain breaks in school. Mm -hmm. Um, So if part of the brain breaks could be some of the simple eye exercises, just like the the testing is looking at how well can they cross their eyes. So if we can incorporate that uh, during a brain break, let's do 10 eye push-ups, as we call them, or pencil push-ups. Let's do some eye stretches, stretching the eyes left and right and up and down in circles, giving the children vision breaks for extended mirror work, you know, encouraging them to look up periodically at least every 20 minutes, take a short break mm-hmm. uh, and let their eyes relax, look out the window for a minute um, or get up and move around. That's going to help prevent those eye fatigue symptoms in in some cases. And if they're using a computer screen, that's probably even more important to do those kinds of breaks, right? Yes, especially during this past year when so much of our schooling has been online, Mm -hmm. just incorporating those things that we call visual hygiene. It's similar to exercise or if you're running a marathon, now some people can go and, and run those 26 miles straight. <laughs> but uh, many of us, if you run a little bit and walk a little bit and run a little bit and walk a little bit, you can actually last a lot longer if you take those breaks than if you just try and, and push through. Yeah, I like that. 
Do you want to share any other of your favorite success stories with us? Yes, I, I mentioned Justin and, and Lynette Heideman as really helping, again, with the change in the school vision screening laws. So right. I want to share the story of their daughter, Savannah. So I'm just going to read what her mother wrote. Okay. She says, uh, Savannah was a bright, beautiful, and energetic child. Missing the cutoff to start kindergarten by 12 days, we enrolled Savannah in a private kindergarten, knowing she could handle it. Then in first grade, we enrolled her in public school, fully expecting her to take off. It did not happen. By the first SEP, her teacher was already talking about holding her back. Mm. Feeling she was too hung up on her age, we went into overdrive and worked extra hard on her reading even hiring a private tutor. Savannah worked really hard, but still by the end of first grade, we faced the agonizing decision of holding her back. We decided to put the social stigma aside and do what was best for our daughter academically and hold her back, not wanting her to constantly be struggling in school. Still not really sure what was going on since we knew Savannah was bright, always asking deep thought-provoking questions advanced socially and orally. We spent the summer working hard on reading daily and intense private tutoring. We were sure she would be at the top of the class repeating first grade. The first week of school brought a lot of tears as Savannah's old first grade friends wanted to know why she was repeating first grade. Savannah wanted to know why too, and it was hard to explain it to her when we as parents didn't really understand what was going on either. The progress never came. It was all still a huge struggle for Savannah, only mediocre in reading, but great in math. She struggled through the year. We continued to provide all the support and help we could for her. She barely passed the first grade. Another intense summer of work and tutoring and reading came and second grade started. By SEPs in November, we sat and cried through them. She had fallen to a first grade, second month level in reading and was fighting to just keep that. Her teacher was very supportive and focused on Savannah's positives and talked with us about what needed to happen, testing, IEPs, and resource. She was already getting all the extra help she could outside of resource. We knew the stigma and labels resource brings with it and we're heartbroken, but willing to do whatever we needed to, to help our daughter learn and progress. In our heart of hearts, we knew something was wrong. Savannah was bright, something was just not working the way it should be, but we had no idea what it was or where to go to find out. Finally, one day, a friend told us about Dr. Price and the kind of testing and therapy he does. Immediately, we called for an appointment. At the end of the appointment, when Dr. Price was telling us Savannah had convergence insufficiency and explaining what was happening when she was reading, we wanted to cry with relief. Finally, an explanation as to what she was going through and what was going on with our beautiful and bright little girl and hope that this could be fixed and she could learn. Therapy started the 25th of February, and by May, Savannah was on grade level reading. And not just her reading improved, but her confidence soared. She was now a star on the soccer team, finally not running into walls and tripping all the time. 
and at long last able to hold still while she got her hair combed. Savannah is continuing to pass a level of reading every week and now loves to read all the time. Dr. Price and his team have been an answer to prayer and a miracle in our life. We are so grateful to have found him and this therapy. It was still hard work and commitment, but so worth every minute and continues to be. Thank you so much for giving Savannah her life to become what she can. Justin Lynette and Savannah Heideman. Nice. Now, I want to share the follow-up, and I actually just received a graduation announcement from her mother, Lynette, this week. Oh, wow. And I just want to read the card that she sent as well. Okay. She says, hello, everyone. I just wanted to send you Savannah's graduation announcement and give you an update to her story. She is graduating with a 4.0 GPA, plus getting her CNA. She currently works as one. And she will finish her MA in June. She is going to SUU with a full four-year presidential scholarship in the honors program. She is planning to become a nurse and then pursue her nurse practitioner's degree. You all were such a big part of her start in life. So you share in all of her success. Keep being amazing and changing lives. Lynette, Savannah, and family. Excellent. So as I mentioned, all of our patients are precious to us. I certainly wish that we could have this type of success story with everyone. Um, and while not all are as dramatic, mm-hmm. um, like I said, they're, they're all life-changing. I think both of the patients and especially to us, like I said, that's what keeps us going. Now, the Heidemans actually started a foundation called the Find Your Focus Foundation. Their goal is to help spread the word about vision therapy and also to raise funds to help families that just aren't able to afford vision therapy. So anyone that's interested, please go to findyourfocusfoundation.com and look for ways that you can help others as well. Okay. And I'll put that in the notes for the show also. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for those great success stories and for all the information that you share today. Do you have any final words for us today as we wrap up? Well, again, thanks for the work that you're doing. As I mentioned, word of mouth through our patients is really the best way to help others. Mm -hmm. We're just fortunate to kind of be that facilitator. So, Thank you to you and to those that you've worked with, those that you've had on your your podcast that is just helping, again, spread the word. And if we can find that one person that has been struggling without any answers, if we can help change the quality of their life even a little bit, I think it's worth it. That's great. Well, thank you. We appreciate all you're doing. I think the thing that I notice when I'm, trying to give people information on the Facebook groups and stuff is that, you know, either they haven't heard of it at all, or if they have, sometimes it's just not available in their area. Mm -hmm. And so those are some things that we're working to change. And I think the more people know about it, then more people will, you know, there'll be more doctors doing it. There will, it'll be more readily available. More people will know that it's an option and it can only build from there. With all the things that we've learned during this 
COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. Technology has helped us reach out and, and help people over Zoom and, and where we can, even if we can't see them in the office, through technology, we can work with people that, that may live hundreds of miles from a vision therapy doctor. So if they'll reach out, find a doctor close to them, there's still things that can be done. So you're doing some distance therapy also then? Yes. Okay. And while it is certainly more challenging, um, yeah, there are things that can be done and, and we can start making changes. Excellent. Um, do you want us to include uh, contact for you if people were interested in doing some distance therapy with you? So our website is um, childandfamilyeyes.com. Nationally, people can go to covd.org. That's the website of the College of Optometrists and Vision Development. There's a doctor locator button where they can, again, put in their their address or or city state zip code uh, and search for uh, vision therapy doctors near them. Mm -hmm. It's probably better to go in and at least have a consultation in person before you start doing distance type of things, right? Yes, that's certainly the ideal. Yeah. But uh, as we've discussed, being the the first one here in Utah for years, we had patients driving hours from St. George, Mm -hmm. from Logan, Southern Idaho, because there was no one in, in that area. Right. And so, yeah, we were able to develop a plan where instead of coming in every week, maybe they would come in every month or every two months and and we could still work and help them. Fortunately, there are doctors now and in those areas that can, can help and we can refer to someone closer to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. The world is, is getting smaller all the time. (laughs) It is. There's definitely more options than there ever have been before and uh, definitely more information at our fingertips. Right. Yes. So, well, great. Thank you so much. And I'll put all of that in the show notes and we'll see how many more people we can help. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Our Sight. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, add a review and share it on your favorite social media. You can also ask questions or suggest a guest by visiting my Facebook page, Healing Our Sight, and more information is found on my website, HealingMySight.com. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.